Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful Raleigh, North Carolina. With me is Benjamin Hess. He's the collections manager of mammals here at the museum. Thank you for joining us, Ben. You're very welcome. Thank you, Laura. Great. So you are in currently in the process of getting your doctorate as a mammologist. Correct. Wonderful. So when I was growing up, um, I did not know that there were other kinds of doctors. I only knew the doctor that I would go to if I was sick. Um, do people come to you if they're sick? Once you get your doctorate, will people come to you when you're sick? It'll most likely be that I have to explain to them the difference between the two. And so, yes, I'm uh, currently enrolled at North Carolina State University, as I'm also working full-time at the museum here in North Carolina. So it's been a great opportunity to continue learning more. I mean, I think that's the biggest reason that a lot of us are actually employed at the museum here. We love to learn, and we have so many questions, and you realize that just showing up isn't quite enough to have all the answers. <laughs> so you continue on with your education. So when you, um, so currently you're working on your doctorate, also known as a PhD. So that's a, a, a doctor of philosophy of mammalogy. So, um, so it's different than a medical doctor, but it does mean that you are an expert in that area. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So the way the way that I'm working on things right now uh, is going to be a stepwise component. There's a master's mm -hmm. component, uh, and then it's the bigger questions that I have will be the way that my PhD starts to evolve. So my project is actually working on a distribution and status of northern and southern short-tailed shrews in North Carolina. Hmm. And so that's where it starts. That's a mouthful, distribution and status of shrews. So the, so the per, first part of this is we begin as going into collections. My, my job here is a collections manager. So it all started as there's little differences as you open up drawers within a collection. And so as you see these differences, sometimes they're just differences because of where something exists, or it really could be that they're distinct species. So let me pause you right there. So you're working with shrews, which are like little mouse-like things, and you just said when you open up drawers. So are you telling me that here in the museum there are drawers full of dead shrews? So within this museum, we have a resource called Museum Collections. And so the best way to describe that is we're sort of a library. If you were interested in a specific topic, say like history, you would go to the library, you'd find that topic, and you'd start to go through and look at books. So that would be your resource. If your question and the topic of interest would be, in my case, mammals, I would be the individual you come to. So kind of a way to describe me is I'm a librarian. If you're interested in mammals within North Carolina, the Southeast United States, and then expanding beyond, I'm the librarian that you actually would go to. So my references instead of books are going to be uh, museum cabinets that are filled with specimens. So these specimens are a uh, snapshot of an uh, individual that occurs at a specific place and a specific time. Okay, so when these, when these specimens are gathered, so when these animals are preserved uh, and they're kept in these collections in these drawers full of shrews, as the case may be at the museum, um, they're tagged with where they were found, what the environment was probably like at the time, and, and the date, I'm assuming? Yeah, so 
the thing that separates for what I maintain, it's a research collection. The thing that separates a research collection from in this museum, the Naturalist Center collection, is the data that's associated with that. Often the ones that are in our Naturalist Center, they're open to the public to kind of handle and look at and really investigate, but there's not as much data associated with those. What makes for us a scientific study skin or a museum voucher specimen is a specimen that has all that associated data. We're retaining these specimens and the data and some of the knowledge that we've already been gaining, it's kind of, this kind of research has been around. But there's a lot of things that are just starting to develop more and more, like analyzing old specimens and you can determine uh, what they were eating at a particular time, if there was contaminants in the environment at that time. And you can start to fill in a lot of little gaps of what we didn't know that occurred in the environment just because of having these specimens. Very interesting. So by, by analyzing the samples from these animals, and I know I keep referring to the shrews, but by looking at those and, and analyzing the data that you're able to collect, you can piece together the puzzle of what the environment was like back then, whenever that time period might be, if there were pesticides, if there were chemicals in the ground Absolutely. or in the air. So if there... And a lot, a lot of that actually will be retained within the hair, within the bone. Uh, there's a group with the EPA that is actually uh, looking at sort of bone contamination and how things accumulated through through the environment. So it gives them a really good opportunity of how to look at certain animals. So how far back are you able to gather information? So if you were to go do an analysis today, how far back is it? Ten years, twenty years, thousand years? I think that really depends on the question. If you're looking at a question that requires you to do genetic analysis, we've been able to extract DNA from specimens that have gone back hundreds of years. If your question is more along the lines of what maybe it was eating, there's different kind of signatures that the bone or the hair might show you to tell you like the carbon or the oxygen and what was around for a food choice at that time. You can see if it changed over time. So what are some of your current research projects? So kind of along the lines of what I was talking about, the beginning of my current project that I'm working on, it's distribution and status. So again, we go into these museum drawers and I look at differences between what now is being called two different distinct species, a northern and a southern short-tailed shrew within the state. From there, we're trying to look if there's subspecies. And this is kind of uh, different on how, depending on your individual, some folks agree that there are these subspecies, some people don't. And the bottom line question is, do they exchange genetic information? So what we're trying to decide is, is there barriers in, you know, for what I'm looking at within North Carolina, is there barriers where they don't interbreed? And that's going to be the designation of a subspecies. How do you determine that? How do you make your observations in order to come up with a conclusion? The way that I originated this whole idea is you start with looking at museum specimens. And for external body measurements, this is one of the things that we have the ability to look at within a, a specimen, there's a lot of overlap between northern and southern species. Think of it in terms of humans. There's such a wide diversity in our size, measurements, weight, and so the same exists in all the other mammals. The skulls for a mammal are one of the true diagnostic characters that we look at besides genetics. So this starts off by 
doing measurements on tiny little shrew skulls, and as you do analysis on the measurements of those skulls, they separate out, and it's very distinct how they separate for the northern and southern species. The subspecies question is just a whole nother component, and so the measurements are not enough. So now we have to get into that genetic comparison and see if they're showing similarities or differences along those uh, measurement differences that we're seeing. And I would imagine at that point, that's when you pair up with other scientists who have different specialties so that you can work together. And so, you know, the, the genetics part might not be your area of expertise. And so you sort of work in tandem with them, trying to figure out similar questions, but that will each help you in your various areas of study. Absolutely. So I'm partnering up with uh, folks that are in our genomics lab here at the North Carolina Museum. And so I'm training with someone to relearn how to do this myself because it has been a number of years since I've done any genetic analysis. Like anything else, you're going to forget a number of those components. So we begin with uh, tissue samples from those individual specimens, and then we go through a number of uh, reactions, a polymerase chain reaction, extracting DNA, amplifying the DNA, looking at differences or similarities between sequences of DNA. How did you first become interested in mammals? What made you decide to become a mammologist? You know, I started out doing a lot of camping as a kid, uh, doing work you know, with Boy Scouts, and always loved the outdoors. When I finally started uh, my undergraduate, uh, when I was in Pennsylvania, I actually wanted to be a math teacher. But there was that part of me that realized that I wasn't getting outside being a math teacher. Sure. And so I started to do both math and biology. And as I was taking a course as an undergrad, a job opportunity popped up to do mammal surveys throughout the state. So I started out doing a summer's worth of small mammal trapping all across the state of Pennsylvania, led me to a lot of different fun areas, and slowly I was hooked, realizing that, one, there's actually a job that would allow you to go out, one, play in the woods, and then two, <laughs> look at mammals and a lot of the diversity. Why do you think it's so important that we do surveys like this or that we study mammals in general? So I think one of the big things is there's so much more to learn. One of the individuals that we're currently uh, collecting in our uh, market capture study is a cotton rat. It's so common in this area, but for how common it is, there's so much more that we don't know. So each day there's a new question that you can ask, whether it be about their diet, whether it be their movement, how they interact with uh, the same species, how they interact with a predator or their prey. And I think that by learning more about other species, it helps people learn more about their own. You can identify habits and how disease might spread and migration and things like that. And all of those things can be sort of tied back to the impact on, on human existence as well. Oh, absolutely. The, I guess to use the analogy for what we're doing at Prairie Ridge, one of the goals of Prairie Ridge is to reconstruct a native grassland setting. So currently, the majority of that landscape was fescue that was planted for agriculture. And so they're slowly turning it back to what's called a warm season grass. And one of the main grasses is a switchgrass. So that grass offers better protection for animals. And perhaps, which is one of our questions, it might even offer a better food nutrition. And so as they're changing the landscape back to what it used to, one of the things that we can look at is now that humans change the landscape and we're now trying to change it back, 
does that influence the mammals, influence their movement, influence density? So there's just so many questions that we actually can ask them. What advice would you give to students who would want to become either a collection manager or who would want to get into studying mammals in general? Best thing I can always say for advice is find a way to volunteer. You're going to really find out quickly if you enjoy it. And more importantly, sometimes is you'll find out if you just say, this isn't for me. Uh, I've definitely had a lot of volunteers that have come in and worked with us. And some you can quickly find out in that first couple hours going, uh, this might not be what I thought it was, and it might not be what I want to do. What is your favorite mammal and why? So there's just such a diversity of mammals, and, and I really, there's not one true one. I think having now been working on my shrew project for a while, I think the thing that really is uh, opening my eyes is what I'm interested in is how things are organized and how they're named, is, which is kind of part of what my job is. And so while studying trues, it led me to the other things that historically were called trues. So one of the things that uh, we have in our collection are tree shrews and elephant trues. And so tree shrews aren't related to shrews except by the name. Okay. And they're more closely related to primates. So they're found within the sort of Southeast Asian area. Really feed on insects, which is how they got their initial link to shrews. But they're a little bit, they feed more on fruits than they do, but they're really omnivorous. And it's it's interesting. There's a, they look like a squirrel. They're related to shrews, or at least that's what they were thought based upon someone first observed them feeding on insects. Now they realize they're way more omnivorous. And so it's just a really cool variety. On the side of an elephant shrew, like the name says, they're actually closer in their relationship to an elephant than they are a shrew. And they have kind of a longish nose, similar to a trunk of an elephant, but they're only about uh, the, the size of a tiny chihuahua. Okay. And so they, they range in size. That's probably the largest one. They're endemic to uh, Africa and only found in some specific locations. But again, they're just there's a diversity of animals that by studying one thing led me to finding out some of these other components. That's fantastic. That's great. Uh, and our last question for you, since this is the walking classroom, we have to ask, what is your favorite place to walk? So really the favorite place always to walk is somewhere in the woods. I like to go somewhere where it's high elevation. You've got a lot of canopy cover, uh, nice stream going through, waterfalls, and some of the things that we're able to see there. Uh, you have to have something that's a little bit more moist. I happen to study shrews, and when you get into that, where you've got the higher elevation and a lot of trees, you get the understory that provides a better nutrition and a lot of diversity for a lot of organisms. You know, within our state of North Carolina, as you start to go to those higher elevations, you get a lot more species. And it's really just neat. It's a gorgeous place. There's something mystical about once you get out and you're able to walk through the woods, whether it be on a trail or you go off trail just to try to see what else you can uh, learn. And I think that's the great part. The more that you're outside, the more that you kind of get off that beaten path, you never know what you might see or what you might learn there. 
And it's all around us, right? Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Take care.